Hi, everyone. It's Mandy. Before we go into it, patrons, you are everything. Thank you so much for being supporters of the show, supporters of the Restorative Grief platform everywhere it's found. Because I've been doing this for a while now, but I tell you, running with others makes it so much more enjoyable. So if you're interested in all the premium content, exclusive interviews coming up, or even just supporting the methods and the work because you know it makes an impact in your life and in others, then we would love to have you join us. Check out the show notes for links and that's that's it. Let's get into it. <laughs> Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 55 titled A Bizarre Thing to Go Through with Phil Drysdale. Over the last decade or so, Phil Drysdale has become a thought leader in the world of deconstruction, but not because he's offering clarity or answers. To his point, as you'll hear, there are no deconstruction churches, organizations, or leaders that you can join on a Sunday morning, but Phil did create a deconstruction community online for people to find one another in person. Anyone who has experienced a shift in their beliefs will tell you that grief is intimately intertwined with a changing faith. So today's conversation is about how we can continue to find growth, meaning, and connection as we move away from black and white thinking into a practice of integration. How do we bring the best parts of our past selves into the present in pursuit of who we are becoming? This is a bit of a long episode, but I guarantee it's worth every minute. Well, hello, Phil Drysdale. How are you today? Welcome to Restorative Grief. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited yeah. to be here. Absolutely. Um, I have followed your work for years. I think I mentioned to you at one point that I have been sending people your way because of your beautiful series on spiral dynamics and the way you just open it all up for people because it's a very useful tool. But um, that's not all that you do. You've got the deconstruction network that you've created for people who are going through a change in their faith practices and the Phil Drysdale show. So why don't you just give us a little snapshot for someone who might not be familiar with your work about yourself a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. So um, I've been in this space probably for about a decade now, well, helping people that are going through the process of shifting away from their faith tradition, whatever that might look like. Um, and so it does look really varied. I think a lot of people have a very um, black and white picture of what it looks like to do that. Um, but it really is one of the most diverse kind of <laughs> movements in the world because moving away from one thing doesn't mean that everyone ends up in the same place. So, um, so it's kind of a bit like herding cats in a sense, except I have no desire to herd anyone. I've no desire to direct anyone particularly. Um, but yeah, for, for about 10 years, I've just been sitting with people and saying, yeah, sure, I'll sit with you while you figure this out. And, and that's what it's really looked like. Um, in the midst of that, um, yeah, I've started the Deconstruction Network, which is a website that helps people find other people that are deconstructing their faith in the local area, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of online spaces for people to connect. And that's amazing. And honestly, it's probably what's carried the vast majority of us through this process of, uh, of losing faith changing faith, evolving faith, whatever it is, having other people to connect with, hearing what's going on in your head on an Instagram post and going, oh my gosh, it's not just me. Those kind of things are huge, but they don't really replace sitting down, having a drink, laughing, crying, hugging, just sitting with someone that gets it. That's a huge thing. And I think most of us that um, have come out of that place of having some very strong faith tradition have grown up with that. We've grown up with people all around us who want to be with us, who want to support us, who want to hear what's going on, who want to offer prayer and support and companionship. And suddenly overnight that disappears. Um, it makes the process even harder that we don't have someone to process with and share. And so the idea behind the deconstruction 
network initially was it was just a map on the internet that you could put a dot on your map and that'd be you and people could click it and send you a message and it was anonymous but once you got to know a few people in your area you're like okay this guy seems legit i'll meet him for a coffee and you know hopefully they don't murder you or something um right. <laughs> i've not heard of anyone that's been murdered so far no one murdered has um, come back to the plane <laughs> <laughs> it should be a tagline deconstruction network no one murdered so far um but we do actually get messages constantly i get picture messages and things like that people that are you know out having coffee with someone they met and saying i've made like a best friend and it's the best thing that's ever happened so it's really meaningful and um and exciting to to see stuff like that but from that we uh we um i've always been interested in data and statistics and things like that and so from that i i thought wow i've got this pool of thousands of people that are on a website and uh, and they all identify in this space as deconstructing what if we asked them some questions and what if we gathered some information and started talking about what is this experience of deconstruction actually looking like? Because generally speaking, for people that don't know, um, the, the term deconstruction is a complex term and a lot of people have a lot of opinions. And generally speaking, the most vocal people about deconstruction are those that have no idea what the heck it is. <laughs> Yeah. So the, the people that you tend to hear most about deconstruction from are a pastor screaming from the pulpit or your grandma on the phone telling you that you're going to go to hell and she's terrified for you. The, the, the people that maybe have heard a little bits or pieces here or there, or they have very vested interests in it being a certain thing, um, maybe to help them feel safe in their own faith or something like that. But rarely do we hear from experts that actually have looked at data that have studied people that are deconstructing and go and actually this is what it looks like. And so the idea there was to help give a voice to this community and, and help this community feel seen. Um, you know, even people that are in this space that talk about deconstruction, that have deconstruction podcasts, that have deconstruction accounts, a lot of them fall into a trap of living in this little bubble. And so you'll see um, progressive Christians that have deconstructed and they live in this little bubble sometimes where they think deconstruction looks like becoming a progressive Christian. And they don't know that actually that's about maybe 15 to 20% of people that deconstruct will do that, which is a big amount. And if they live in that bubble their whole life, there's still millions of people that are in that bubble. That's just fine, but it's not an accurate representation. So if you're deconstructing and you're sitting in that space and listening to that person, you're going, this isn't me. I'm, I'm utterly alone, but you don't know that there's a whole other world somewhere out there that represents you. And so we're trying to do our best to kind of represent, this is the, the very broad, varied experience of people that deconstruct faith. And so, yeah, do that. I post on stuff online. I, I chat with people. I share with people. I've got a podcast. I've not been doing much on the podcast. I'm trying to take a step back away from the day-to-day sitting with people, running podcasts, doing interviews with so many amazing people, doing wonderful interviews, wonderful podcasts, helping people on the ground. There's very few people doing research. So I'm trying to focus most of my time on research these days. And so that, that's where I am. But yeah, sorry, rambling around. I love it. You're, it. you're safe in yeah. the rambling world with me. Um, <laughs> and I love the work that you've done for so long because that ability to simply sit with someone is such a gift for someone that's falling apart, whose world is crumbling around them. Because we as grief supporters don't necessarily know just to keep our mouth shut and listen to your point you made off the air, this idea that we have answers and we think we owe them to someone or we can guide them through their deconstruction. It's so centering and obnoxious. So what mm -hmm. is it in your time doing this that led you to recognize I have to be very quiet as I help people lead because I, I mean, unless you miraculously started out in the work doing it that way, I certainly didn't. So I'm curious if there was no. anything that just hit you and said, oh, wait a minute. Being terrible. Right. I mean, that's how, how it works, right? You do it a certain way. I'm a loud, obnoxious. I've got ADHD. I just ramble. I monologue. I like to tell people everything and anything. I've got special interests. I know everything about it and i'll talk about them for an hour so like yeah you come to me and go oh i don't know about this and i'm like i do i can tell you everything um and you realize that people it doesn't mean anything to that person because they weren't really asking that question i just heard the question i wanted to speak about or whatever it might have been right um and so yeah generally speaking how i learned to sit with people was i realized gosh this stuff doesn't work uh, it may have worked for me and it might even work for maybe like one in a hundred people I speak to, but 
it's not a very good success rate to give a single cookie cut answer to every person. Um, maybe you stumble across the one person in this world that's a bit like you and it works. But generally speaking, you're going to have a very bad success rate. And that was, that was me. You know, I'd, I'd have people come to me and they ask some questions. And my journey was my journey. And it was very unique to me. I had my own experience. What you find with deconstruction, again, is that everyone's deconstruction is unique. Even people that come from exactly the same faith group, even maybe exactly the same church, they had a different experience. Maybe they um, went through a divorce and you didn't. That's going to have impacted what their faith experience was in that church, in that denomination, in that religion. And therefore, what worked for you or the questions you had might not be the questions they had. And so I think I've started more and more learning that the more I listened, the more I could hear where people were at and the more I might be able to actually give them something helpful to answer that. And then what I found more as I kept doing that was the answers weren't ever really required. The amount of times, because I get hundreds of messages a day, maybe hundreds a week. Uh, some days I only get a few, but some days I get hundreds and it is a lot. Um, so sometimes, you know, I, I'm, maybe I'm busy a day or I'm just a bit overwhelmed. So I take a couple of days off messages and I'll come back and I'm just really, I'll work through hundreds of messages and plowing through. And half of them are saying a, a second follow-up message from the message I didn't reply to two days ago saying, you know what, a day after I sent that, that was it. It's all I need to do was just tell someone yeah. I'm, I'm good. Don't worry about replying. Thank you so much. And I get that message all the time, which possibly speaks to how slowly I reply to people's DMs. Um, so bear that in mind if you shoot me a DM. Um, but it, it's what we need, right? I don't know. I mean, your, your podcast is about grief. So I imagine you have very well experienced knowledge of, a, of a, what it's like. And many people listen to this too. But, you know, I lost my mom years ago, um, four or five years ago now. I didn't need answers. I didn't need anyone to tell me what to do, how to do it, how to feel, whatever. I just kind of needed to sit. And it was really nice having people that understood that and sat with me. And it was really not nice to have other people come along and think they were sitting with me, but instead they were trying to preach to me or they were trying to fix me or they were trying to comfort me. But I didn't need it in the way they were offering. Maybe it was, it might've been very comforting to someone else, but it wasn't to me. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, we all have these different experiences, but I think oh, on the whole, it's been doing it, doing it for years and years and years. You very quickly, quickly being a, a, a loose term, probably a year or two in, I was like, Person. okay, I really need to become a little less prescriptive in my worldview. Um, but bit by bit, you start to realize, oh, I don't actually, and also you don't have answers half the time, right? And let's be honest. I mean, maybe for a couple answers here and there, we have some answers that might be quite good or significant. Maybe you have a specialist interest or a degree in something, or you've studied something for years. But a lot of the time, the questions people come to you, they're so specific, so unique. Their stories are so... Um, so nuanced that I've not lived your life. I don't know, but I, I see those emotions. I feel those emotions. I can recognize those emotions and yeah, it sucks. Like, and generally that's what most people need is, uh, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's funny how far a, that sucks will go too. Um, I, I actually lost my mom in 2016. So it's been about six years for me. And I think what was really interesting in the aftermath of that horrible occurrence was watching the way, and I can say this in retrospect, watching how I witnessed my story and my addiction to black and white thinking crumbling at the same time. So mm. just, and I had always been the person that was willing to say, no, there's gray space in between. Nothing is actually black and white. But then when, you know, push comes to shove, recognizing, oh, damn, I have internalized a lot of black and white thinking and now my faith and my framework and my structure is also crumbling right alongside this already significant loss in my life. So I've got all these secondary losses. And I imagine a lot of people who do come to deconstruction are coming off of the back of something like that. Um, no. So I'm curious, how do you approach when people just supporting someone um, when they are, when they recognize, wait a minute, this mentality or this person I've lifted as an authority or this book that I've built my life on. There's a lot of black and white cognitive distortion mm -hmm. here. And now I have to find a way to, to feel safe enough to release that. What does that yeah. look like for you as a supporter? 
It's really interesting. Um, it took me a long time to recognize this because I, before I was in this space, I was in a very Christian space. So it was very, um, in my own world, Christian world, I was traveling, I was speaking, I was doing conferences and college, uh, speaking in colleges and churches and things like that. And so I, I had all the answers and I went around telling people what the right answers were. Um, and, uh, and that worked really well because everyone in church wants to know what the right answer is. And they're very oh, black no. and white thinking a lot of the time, not all churches, but most fundamental churches at least. Um, and so, uh, I was in that bubble, like, uh, and, and that way of thinking was so ingrained in me that even after I deconstructed, even after I kind of had these massive shifts in um, my own spiritual uh, outlook and, and worldview, um, I still would find myself giving black and white answers to life, uh, you know, to all sorts of things in life. Um, and so people would come to me and they'd say, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I I'd foolishly go, oh, this is what I think, or this is what I, and I, and I, it took me about a year, a year and a half to recognize, oh no, I'm stopping. I, I'm, I'm, I'm causing people to um, be delayed in their process of deconstructing healthily, of growing, of evolving, because what's happening is most people that come out of these um, fundamental faiths, fundamental worldviews, where we do see things in black and whites and right and wrongs and left and rights and all these uh, dualistic ways of seeing things, um, we tend to look to authority figures or authority texts or a god or something to say, this is right, this is wrong, do this, do that, you'll be blessed, you'll be cursed very rigid kind of ways of seeing things. And when people first start to deconstruct, what often happens is their authority figures are the ones that come under fire. So people start to question the Bible or their pastor or their Pope or their denomination or their gods. Um, and so they start questioning these things. But what's funny is it's rare that fundamentalistic mindset immediately disappears overnight. And so they've questioned that authority figure, but what they tend to do is look for a new one. So they might not believe the Bible uh, when they are trying to figure out, I don't know, uh, how old the earth is, but they will immediately latch on to something else. Oh, scientists say this. Now, I think you're probably fairly accurate to do so, <laughs> um, but, it's, but it's an example of we, we, we want to find someone else to give us this answer. Now, unfortunately, most of us aren't well-trained geologists or you know, astrophysicists to be able to figure out how the Earth is. Yourself, I ourselves. am extremely I intelligent about rocks. <laughs> there you go. I've got a friend that's really into rocks, so I mean, maybe she, she could, but... Um, but we do this in all sorts of areas. And, and so what we find is people stop, maybe, maybe I don't know, we stop listening to our pastor, but then we latch on to someone online, maybe one of these people in a deconstructing space, maybe a progressive Christian or an atheist or something, and we latch on to them and go, They're, they are experiencing something like I have, or they've got answers to these questions I have. And so we latch onto that person and we grab their answers and we try and make them fit. And what happens is maybe for a few people, it works really well. I, I genuinely think for a lot of people that happens, um, you know, for some people, they deconstruct from a fundamental faith and they go straight into uh, an atheist community and go, wow, yeah, this makes sense. It clicks. It works for me. It makes sense. Or they go into a progressive Christian or maybe they start exploring Buddhism and Taoism and things like that. And it works. That's great. It's really great. I have no problem with that. However, it's a minority for the vast majority of people because there's so much scope out there and because everyone's so unique and different, they need to figure it out themselves. They need to experience a lot of things. They need to try a lot of things. They need to look at a lot of options. And so for me to be giving answers to people that were asking questions, um, what I found was actually I was, I was creating stumbling blocks for them as they were moving forwards. They were stopping to try and absorb my answer when maybe it wasn't right. Maybe again, a few people might have found it really helpful and it might've worked and maybe that's where they are still. And it was the best thing that ever happened. Um, but not many, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> not too many, I don't think. So um, yeah, so I think there's a there's an obligation um, or a responsibility for those people that are in a space of influencing people coming out of authoritarian religions and fundamental worldviews to not feed that fundamentalism, to not feed that dualistic black and white thinking. Because if you do, they might have deconstructed from one worldview, but they actually still underlying have the same 
broad worldview, which is someone else can give me the answers to life and I'll just follow them. And that's a really stunted way to live your life. Um, there's there's no autonomy. There's no freedom. There's no creativity. There's no self-expression in that. Um, and that's what most people really at the core of their deconstruction need to start engaging with they need to start experiencing their own autonomy their own ability to figure out what they believe what they think and that looks like figuring out your own authority figures right i mean so it's not like like i said you're if you're not a geologist maybe look to a geologist to answer the question you know if your pastor's at the pulpit telling you to uh vote for someone or to not wear a, a mask or to not get vaccinated if you're in the fundamental faith, that might work. You might go, well, this guy knows he's hearing from God. I got to do what he says. As you start to deconstruct, maybe it's okay that you have autonomy and you start going, what do I think about that? Do I think a guy with a Bible degree should be giving me immunology advice? Maybe I'll look to an immunologist and ask what they think. And so it's not that you don't have authority figures in your life anymore, but it's that you, from your own place of autonomy, think about who you invest your authority, who who you look to as authorities. And generally speaking, you'll be very nuanced about that. You'll have authority figures in a whole plethora of areas um, because very few people know everything about anything. I know I like to think I know everything about everything, but very few people apart from me know everything about everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all that data and research, Phil. That's why you have so much information and so many answers. Yeah, it's still a very, very small yeah. niche, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's so many things in what you just said that I want to chase down. One thing that right there at the end with that decision to pursue autonomy and be creative and thinking, but remaining in community is a really nuanced place to exist. And I know that over the last couple of years, my own experience within a faith community has been actually enriched quite a bit through remembering. And my husband was even the one that said, go re-listen to Phil's series on spiral dynamics, because it was the blue mentality that kept like bringing up that thought of, okay, well, this is a blue environment. No wonder there's an obsession with security. No wonder there's an obsession with protecting the, the group. No wonder I feel like an outsider because I've gone beyond even this next level of orange. And for anyone listening, I'll put links in the show notes about with Phil's teachings and other cliff notes, because I know spiral dynamics is like what in the world, if you've never heard about it, but, um, it was really fascinating how my anger would dissipate almost immediately. Mm. Um, as, as I was able to kind of reflect really lovingly and compassionately back toward this, any mindset that was jumping all over me from my perspectives and saying, Oh, right. I'm, I'm not attacking you as a person, but you are perceiving that I'm attacking number one and two, that it is your foundation that I'm trying to crack mm -hmm. beneath your feet. No wonder you're self-protecting. No wonder you're pushing me off. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting thing to carry forward, even as you form a new community, whatever that looks like, because to your point about worldviews, it's also a framework that we live within. Like we have anthropologically defined groups in our, in our midst that we belong to. And a friend of mine was talking uh, with me a couple months ago, because we were in a situation where it felt like we were recreating church and that was spoken. Like, I just don't want to remake church again. And I, <laughs> I had to say, well, hold on a minute. It's a structure that we create meaning around. So it doesn't mean we're recreating church. It means we are familiar with the structure of running an, an event or a group of people. How do we separate? And I guess that's a good question for you too. How do you separate when you are familiar with a way of existing in the world, but you're trying to create and be creative around bringing a opportunity for autonomy and new meaning into that setting? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do. I think especially... Um, so we're, we're talking about um, spiral dynamics here. It's just a, a model of psychological development. So mm -hmm. we, we, we 
this is well documented in in psychology that we we develop through stages in life and we grow and so we're just talking about going from one stage to the next and so you right. might be able to a simple example might be going from a toddler to a young child you might in that gap you start to experience empathy you start to think more about others um you start to look to mom and dad um as authorities um in new ways as separate beings from yourself you know so and then you might have teenagers as a later stage where you start to question mom and dad as a authorities and so you know we have these stages of growth and we're just talking about this from a more sociological kind of broader anthropological kind of perspective um what's interesting is generally speaking when we look at stages of development it's really hard for us to connect with the stages we're closest to Mm -hmm. and so this is the hard part right is that um generally speaking that teenager doesn't want to hang out with their 10 year old brother or sister. Right. Cause they're just not cool. They're just young. Ugh, ah, don't want to hang out with them. Right. And so there's this component of, we kind of, we, we, we want to push away what we were. We push away where we came from. We try and distance from that because there's shame. There's uh, all sorts of uh, emotions and uh, that we have to reconcile and come to terms with, with that. And, and this is huge when we leave something like fundamental faith, a lot of us, I mean, I talk to people, every day that are trying to reconcile i was a youth leader and i taught these youth really harmful unhealthy things about sex and their bodies and god and their lives and how do i deal with the fact i did that for 10 years and how many kids did i influence negatively like that's hard to come to terms with right it's hard to come to terms with if we grew up in that just just if it just happened to us never mind if we were part of making that happen to other people um so there's these things where we looking to this the prior stages of our development and we don't really want to uh connect with that part of us and we do want to kind of reject that and and um, and because there is shame, there's embarrassment, there's, we feel deceived, we feel we were foolish to be a part of it, or, or whatever it might be, or we feel like that's a stupid idea, and we've got the right idea now, and, and there's all sorts of stuff going on there that is really hard to engage with. And so, of course, we are very um, cautious when we see those parts come out again. But the truth is, those are just parts of us, right? So, um, a seven-year-old is still very capable of yelling no, just like a toddler, right? Because they learned that at that stage of being a toddler. And, and it was a nightmare when they were a toddler, but it's important for them to learn to say no and to have autonomy and to, to develop some self. Um, and so a teenager is still capable of being empathetic. I know some parents of teenagers are like, really? Um, but, you know, they, they learned that, but it was it's become a part of them. And as they grow and develop, they add more components to that, but it's still a big part of them. And so in that earlier stage it's conventional stage it's very common in fundamental phase where we look for safety and security and certainty and we look to authority figures to find that it's normal for us to still embrace those dynamics in our life there's healthy ways of those being expressed um it's it's healthy to have some rules in your life it's healthy to have some structure it's healthy to create some safety right we all want to feel safe i mean it doesn't matter how far you evolve beyond church or or beyond the conventional way of thinking we all like feeling safe right no one wants to walk into a tiger cage or something right or maybe we do if, but if we felt safe we would maybe it'd be great i don't know <laughs> um seen the, the videos of people playing with tigers or something i mean that sounds great but not a chance i'm gonna do it um so so these 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 prior stages that um, so resonate with our our past that we maybe look down upon, that we we feel shame about, we feel embarrassment, we want to reject. Um, there's a lot in there that's good. I often give people exercises, and I say it's really easy for you to think about all the stuff that you hated about church and all of that different stuff. But why don't you sit down, get a paper out, a paper, a piece of paper, um, and just make a list. Write down all the things you learned while you were in church write down all the things you learned because you were a christian a muslim a jew whatever it might be like when you were in your fundamental faith write down the things that you learned i man i learned how to be a good public speaker i learned how to listen to people i learned how to um sit with people i learned to uh connect with people more i'm, I'm autistic so i actually was a big part of me learning to feel more comfortable around other people to allow people to touch me uh, people were hugging all the time in church and that is not easy for me. Um, but I, that actually helped me develop and grow in that way. Um, and so there's, there's lots of things that actually I really appreciate from that stage of my life. And I have moved forward and brought with me, right? I don't want to stop being good at speaking in public. 
I think that's probably a helpful thing to bring with me. I don't want to stop embracing other people and, and you know, um, being inclusive. Now, of course, in those prior stages of our life, we were maybe much less inclusive. But the truth is, a lot of churches, you sit down and look at a, a group of people in a church and you think, these people would not be friends in any other context. So in right. some ways, while it's only inclusive of people that believe the same thing, it's quite inclusive beyond that in other ways a lot of the time, right? So someone that might have been excluded in, the, in some sort of societal group is now very much included because they're a part of our church, because they're a part of our faith, whatever it might be. So I, I learned some of that. Now I want to grow. I now want to include, gosh, gay people, trans people, people of other races, you know, maybe some of the things that my church didn't do so well. So absolutely, let's move forward. But it's not that this is a different thing. This is that we're building on this. And so I think as we move forward with autonomy, we can continue to have community and we can build on those things. But it's having an awareness of what was good in that space and what wasn't and building on what was good and correcting what wasn't. And, and I think that's really the key um, to moving forward in a healthy way. I think integrating our past self and our past um uh identity is key to being healthy um you know we talk about um so in in psychological development there's um uh, a window of thought regarding something like narcissism so mpd um so narcissists one of the main schools of thought around narcissism is that it generally comes from um extreme neglect or abuse or, or some sort of real tragic neglect um or abuse at, around the age of being a toddler um, and basically what it means is as we were going through stages of development we didn't get very far we got to about toddler and then there was so much abuse harm neglect that we didn't get to move to the next stages we didn't get to at five six seven years old really five or six you're starting to learn empathy um we didn't get to do that now because we didn't have the right experience. And, and so they get stunted and they get left there. And, you know, these people become presidents. They become powerful business videos. You know, being a narcissist can be quite powerful and, and, and helpful to people in the right unhealthy contexts um, that unfortunately a lot of our world thrives on. Um, and so, you know, these stages are really important that we integrate them that we move through them in a healthy, meaningful way, because otherwise we end up in these stunted ways. We end up as an adult toddler, or maybe as a lot of fundamental um, people in fundamental faiths are, as a very conventional thinker. So we have people that can't think beyond their own country because they're so conventionally minded that they have to rally around people that look like me, that act like me, that live in the same place. And so they can't empathize with a person in another country. And so they then vote against uh, whatever it might be, some sort of uh, maybe vote for a war or vote against immigration or something that affects another person in another country that it's very hard for us to engage with. But when we're so fixated on America first, Britain first, whatever it might be, every country has these kind of thinkings. Um yeah, it's it's to do with stunted growth, and so it's really important that we 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 healthily move through those stages. Um, and I think that's a big part of what it is to to deconstruct from your faith. You're you're starting to move away from conventional thinking and start to embrace this autonomy and individual thought and and self development and um, yeah, all of this amazing stuff. It's it's a really healthy, meaningful progression. Um, but it's not the end either. And we keep moving forward. We keep moving forward. So that's the key, hopefully, for most people. Yeah, gosh, there's so many good things there. But... I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> I just rambled about something for a while. But this is my ADHD brain. I just grab something and then I forget what I'm talking about and keep You're going. Okay. <laughs> Remember, grief professional. I listen to rambling all day long. So we're you're safe here. Wonderful. Um, one of the things that you brought up that it, it made me think about these beautiful efforts around decolonizing our faith practices. For those of us who become progressive Christians or choose to stay within some kind of religious framework, at least in America, there is a wild disconnection between a white person's experience within the church and a person of color's experience within the church. And yeah. the same is true, even within spiral dynamics, I think about it often in how, because all psychological theories have flaws and miss, miss the boat on some way. And I think in that context, the way I've been approaching sp spiral dynamics as, um, 
just as a grief professional has been to recognize too, that there are always going to be exceptions to, to a hierarchy, to a, to a framework. How do we continue to find what is useful and include that as we spiral upward, but recognize where we are excluding people that we want to include to your point about Mm -hmm. like the community saying, Oh, this person might normally be a social pariah, but because we believe the same book, they're now included, even though I internally, and this is going to like probably hit the nail on the head for people. It certainly was for me, people that were in my community that I still was worried about, or you had yellow flags about, I'm not going to go be in community just because we believe the same thing we're still not actually in community. So it was really easy Mm -hmm. to walk away from people or um, it was a very inauthentic engaging with individuals because of certain internal discriminations that we've created around people um, Mm. for many reasons. So has, how does decolonizing your faith or anyone's like, as that comes up, how do you encourage people to go broader? Knowing of course you yourself are a white man, yeah, white, yeah, absolutely. White presenting, right? Like, of course, that's... the person to be talking about this. Um... <laughs> well, I'm calling you higher, Phil. I'm calling you I into know, it. I know. Because <laughs> it's powerful. I, I, I'll, I'll go for it. Um, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. If I was to do it again, my Spiral Dynamics uh, series is very old. Um, and yeah. I really hadn't begun to decolonize at all, really, uh, at that point. Maybe, maybe starting to tiptoe into some of the mm-hmm. ideas of it. And I think spirodynamics, as far as I mean, there's hundreds of psychological development models. Um, and, I, and I think spirodynamics is a very good one. It's based around values. So these different models are often based around different things. Personally, if I was to do it again today, I'd probably do it around um, Suzanne Cook-Greuter's um, ego development theory, which is, I think is a much more holistic and it's um, much more inclusive. Um, and it's, it's really good work. Um, you can download her full PDF of her paper on that. Um, just type in her name, Suzanne Cook-Greuter, um, ego development theory. Um, and it's, it's pretty accessible. It's, it's, you might have to read through it about four or five times, but <laughs> print it out and highlight it as you go or something. It. It's, it's really great. Um, so I, I do think, you know, the the nature of development, I mean, in and of itself is a very privileged thing. And so at the end of the day, growing up psychologically is privilege, right? Mm-hmm. So we talk about the toddler that doesn't get to do it and ends up becoming um, quite an unhealthy human adult because they had such a scarring um upbringing maybe their parents were drug addicts and they weren't even feeding their kid they weren't looking after their kid they didn't get to go to school they didn't get to socialize with other friends they they gosh i watched a documentary with my wife recently where literally a seven-year-old kid living with her mom and dad who was literally watching them after they shot up on heroin to make sure they didn't die and she knew how to call the police and that was her childhood and you're like that kid is probably going to develop somewhat slower than the rest. Now, is she worse than anyone? Is she a worse human or not as good a human or something like that? No one would say yes to that, right? No one. Um, But we would all recognize that um, she's had a much, much, much harder experience than most people. Um, I can't even imagine. Uh, Now, if we look broadly at somewhere like America, much of the world, realistically, but America is a great example. I'm assuming most of your audience are probably in America. Um, I don't think many people, that's probably not true. I think many people today are aware that people of color, black people, indigenous people have had a much harder time existing yeah. on the United States of America <laughs> soil, period, right? Um they have had a terrible go of it because white people came in and just ruined everything. It took everything, owned everything, limited everyone's ability to progress, to grow, to be themselves. They took land from indigenous people. They enslaved black people. Like it's so hard to describe just how much of a setback that is to someone period. And we're talking hundreds of years year on year on year compounding of oppression and of being set back. You know, you, you look in certain communities in America and you have almost no one getting to go to college. You have huge, huge portions of communities going straight to prison, just straight from high school to prison, if they're lucky to have gone through all of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that is massively correlated with race. And that often is then massively used in some sort of weird racist argument or something like that. But I think at the end of the day, what it says is that we have done a huge disservice Mm -hmm. to our fellow humans. Um, And so I think when we look at something like psychological development, I think it is so key that we give everyone the best opportunity they can to develop periods. So we look at reparations so that, um, you know, uh, black people can get into college uh, and they get a foot up to do that. And people talk about, well, it's like fair, it's like, whatever. but that, this is really important work. And so we look at different things that we're trying to do. Um, some countries better than others, some communities better than others, some politicians better than ours or mayors or you know different people are trying to do this in different ways and i am not an expert on how this should work and i am not the person to be talking about how reparations should be working i'm the person to be doing the reparations if i can (laughs) um and so um i'm not going to go into that but i do think a big part of our um conversation as to reparations um does need to be how do we facilitate making space for people to grow and develop right? You, you don't get to grow and develop if you're a single mom working three part-time jobs and not even getting enough hours to get health care and look after your kids. And you're struggling to um, make sure your kids get to school on time be- between all your work and you're struggling to feed your kids. There's so much going on. Do you know what you don't do in that period? You don't sit down and read some self-help books. You don't sit down and go, where are my holes in life? Where do I need to grow as a person? You don't get that opportunity. Um, and so I think across the board, there are people that are hugely disadvantaged in life they've been given a much worse um foot up um, and and those people are uh disadvantaged in the ways that they'll be able to develop and i think that's a huge huge statement but it's so important when we talk about development development is never a measure of a human um i, I think this is something i try to hammer home constantly in my spiral dynamics series is you know nobody in the world looks at like um, an old person, maybe someone that's 80 years old and then looks at a teenager and goes, well, the old person's better than a teenager because they've <laughs> developed more. Like a, a teenager is an, an old person. They're, they're both human, right? And the, the the toddler isn't worse than a teenager, right? Now the toddler might not be able to do calculus and maybe your teenager can, depending on how much they pay attention in school. Um, but you wouldn't expect a toddler to do calculus. So there's no expectation of that. So so I think it's really important that we, we don't set expectations beyond um, anyone's current place. Like people are developed to the degree where they can be developed. I don't think anyone intentionally tries not to develop and grow. Um, and so I think it's really important, especially when we look at things like, I think in deconstruction space, it's really interesting to look at this. Um, you know, people coming out of their faith communities, it's really easy to look backwards and look at this prior stage and demonize it and go, they're idiots. Yeah. They don't believe, they they just believe anything they're told. How can they believe a Bible or you know, or whatever? How do they believe a pastor says about that? so done what they voting like this oh so and they they demonize this prior stage and they forget that six months ago they were voting the same way they were listening to the pastor they were and they weren't an idiot they weren't uh you know foolish they weren't uh, you know reckless they were really serious and committed and and trying the very best they could but it's how much they've grown up and again, you wouldn't look at a toddler and go, what an idiot. They don't know what 24 divided by 3.2 is. What a foolish idiot. No, we just go, oh, they're a toddler. I'm not going to expect them to know what one plus one is yet. Um, come back in 20 years and we can talk about like advanced math or something maybe, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to expect that from anyone. Um, so I think this is it's really complex when we look at psychological development. It's really easy to start looking at as a hierarchy, um, but it's... Um, in some way is a hierarchy it's, it's, it's a progression it's a growth just like in you know someone in their 60s is older than someone in their 50s but yeah. not all hierarchies are measures of worth of value or anything like that in fact maybe very few if any are yeah. um so i don't know I, I i i try not to speak in absolutes but if i had an absolute that might be one <laughs> that i don't think there are hierarchies we can create that that dictate someone is more valuable than another yeah. um and so i think it's really careful we don't do that. i think it's really careful that uh, and i think it's really important that we look at people in these positions so we look at people 
um, maybe uh, communities and and people groups that we have completely marginalized and 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 hindered in their ability to to develop and grow and to be fully who human and who they are. Yeah. Um, people like that don't get the opportunity to go off and be autonomous and start to think about you know people yeah. you know s- half the people in America don't think about someone in uh, you know Mongolia or Iraq because they are barely able to you know make to the end of the day. They're barely able to figure out how they're going to buy dinner tonight. Like someone like that doesn't have the space to be all inclusive thinking about people on the outside of the world. They don't have the space to be thinking, oh, uh, do I need to recycle this bottle right now so that we don't destroy the earth? They're not thinking 50, 100 years from now. They're thinking 10 minutes from now. Um, And I think it's really important that we look at that and go, how do I help you? How do I facilitate your growth? And I think that's, if you have the privilege to be growing and to be developing and to have the space to be doing that and incredibly important work and decolonizing is a huge part of that. If you've got the space to be decolonizing, part of that should be thinking, how do I create space for those that have been colonized to do this work too? How do I create space Mm -hmm. for them to have the privilege to grow and expand and to develop? Because right now, Generally speaking, broad strokes in a lot of parts of the world, development and growth and self-development and self-help and thinking about yourself and working on yourself is a very white middle-class opportunity. Absolutely. Outside of that, few people get to sit around and do that. It's it's just a matter of fact. And it's shit. (laughs) It needs fixed. It needs changed. Um, I love that you brought up privilege. A friend of mine was um, putting together... Uh, a grief retreat with a yoga instructor and they ended up not following through because my friend, the grief professional was saying this yoga professional really wants this to be like a 200 or a 2000 to $2,500, you know, weekend getaway retreat at this beautiful spa. And she's like, I want it to be $200 with scholarship opportunities. Plus they cover the cost of wherever that, you know, camping, I want this to be accessible because she and I are very big on our grief work has to be accessible and attainable by all Mm. who want it. And I just gave, I was like, I give you full permission to back out if you need to, because that elitist perspective has a very specific um, audience, which is fine, but she's the wrong partnership for your audience. And you don't want to alienate the people who trust you where you've created safety for them by uh, removing their access. And, and it's, it's funny how, bringing up privilege. I talk about grief as a privilege all the time, because being able to cry just to your point is a privilege. Having a chance to sit back Mm -hmm. and give yourself five minutes. Sometimes that too is a privilege. And even knowing that that is um, a meaningful act on your own behalf, having the knowledge and affirmation that that is an okay thing to do is a very privileged perspective too. So thank you for stepping into a part of the conversation that was probably (laughs) a little outside of your wheelhouse, but I think it's really crucial that we continue to make ourselves uncomfortable and, and bring our uh, sense of understanding, but also our humility to those uncomfortable places. Cause that really is, you know, what grief does in any aspect that it manifests, whether it's through our loss of faith, our loss of community, our loss of relationships, mm-hmm. loss of life and someone, uh, loss of a future, especially. Um, I think we fail to recognize that our humility is the one thing that we can rely on because it's, it's a very much a, why not me oh. approach to life. And that, I mean, I think that that's really quite restorative in and of itself is this ability to say, well, why, why wouldn't this happen to me? Why wouldn't I be one to experience a revelation of cognitive dissonance in my practices and then recognize, oh my God, my uh, gut and my values and my you know, sense of honor in the world are not going to allow me to continue to behave mm. in this way. <laughs> no, it's really, really good. And I, I just, let me throw something on top of that as well, because I think this is interesting. The, the stage after conventional thinking, looking for safety and certainty and security. Now, m- many people in this world that are desperately just getting by mm-hmm. don't even have the privilege of being at that stage. Yeah. It's actually why they become part of communities like churches and things like that. And, and this is why you see things like churches and, and, and groups like that 
are so key to people that are in this tumultuous position. So uh, uh, one thing that someone uh, looked into, which is really fascinating, is prisoners coming out of prison. And they looked at um, different types of churches that were uh, like helping mm-hmm. prisoners. And they thought that maybe the, the, the more... Um, developed like later stage churches ones that were more progressive and inclusive and had more autonomy and taught about autonomy and taught about you know like being inclusive and and all these things would have better success with prisoners and actually it turns out they have much worse success than there's the the churches that were teaching you absolute answers and just the way to live life and rules and regulations but it would give you safety and certainty and security and if you stop and think about it people in prison do not have safety certainty and security and they probably or autonomy benefit from developing some rules and structure around their lives often that's what's landed them in prison is they didn't have some structure and rules that um uh, uh, the privilege to grow and develop in and live within some frameworks that they they get to choose and be a part of um and so it's really interesting that as we look at these stages they do serve a purpose and what's really interesting is the stage that many people are deconstructing or moving into this autonomous stage mm-hmm. if we're not careful this stage can actually come right back full circle and in its most unhealthy um parts because no stage is perfect all stages has very unhealthy aspects and very healthy aspects its worst aspects are so autonomous so Mm self-centered that it does start taking advantage of people so it starts preying on people that are looking for absolute answers and gives them absolute answers for three thousand dollars and you know what if your your world is upside down you'll scrape together three thousand dollars right probably won't do much for you and now you've just been robbed of three thousand dollars um so it's really important i think um for people to be aware of the the negative parts of our development and our growth so as we leave this communal thinking and this this kind of group thinking and hive mind to become a bit more autonomous it's not that we leave thinking about others and we we don't leave that stuff we just move into a new season of starting to develop new skills but it's really important that we're aware that those new skills can become very warped and we could apply those in very unhealthy ways um and so yeah i think it's really really interesting and it's no surprise that you'll see this again and again in the deconstruction space yeah Um, you'll see so many people in deconstruction space offering courses and programs and this and that and they're all white straight males um usually ex-pastors um but there's no shortage of people with black and white answers offering you the answers because they see people that are vulnerable and scared and looking for some certainty and they offer it with a big price tag and they walk away very very wealthy and so yeah it's it's something to be aware of as we grow that just because we're growing up doesn't mean that we're not um susceptible to being just as unhealthy as some of the things that we've left um i often say that some of the people in deconstruction space are just as dangerous yeah as absolutely. the pastors they left yeah. um they maybe sound more inclusive maybe okay. they're a bit more inclusive yeah. maybe they um aren't extremely homophobic or transphobic or something maybe so maybe some healthy growth um yeah. but actually undercurrent they're actually very dangerous and should be quite mm. cautious about people like that that have black and white answers and that um, are in that space. Anyway. It's okay. So one last question in regards to people who have stepped away, but are still manifesting values and behaviors that are not safe. Would you approach individuals who are kind of obsessed and this sounds harsh, but kind of obsessed with like the internet warrior. I will take on all the proselytizing people because I'm doing the deconstruction communities work like literally Mm -hmm. the flip behavior of proselytizing, but fueling their own pain and frustration and anger, you know, a grief professional perspective that is the complete opposite of meaningful. But there's some kind of meaning because we historically have not stood up for ourselves in that space. So Mm -hmm. how would you, how would you approach and support and encourage people who are like, oh, you know what? For the last six months, I've wasted my life yelling at strangers on the internet who are never going to change their mind, who are never going to apologize, who are going to hate me forever. How would you call them higher, but on their own behalf? I think, you know, I try to just work with individuals. So I don't tend to call it big groups of people or anything like that. Well, I sure. just sit with people. And and, and so yeah. like, um, I think it, there's a space for that. And I think, you know, there's certainly accountability needs to be had. And so people can face the consequences of their words and their actions. And I'm very pro uh, 
helping people learn the hard way. Um, but I think generally speaking, people need to learn the hard way. We don't learn very easily. We don't grow very easily. Generally speaking, we need to go around that roundabout five times before we learn the lesson. Um, at least from my own experience, I had rarely learned something very easily. Even if I intellectually get it, I got to try it out a few times before it's happening. Um, and so, you know, I see this in my DMs over and over and over again. I, I talk with people and, and you know, I, I could give them the answer they want or they need um but it's probably not the answer they need yet if yeah. uh, until they are really kind of coming there themselves until they're putting it forward generally speaking if 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 i do anything i ask questions to give them an opportunity to give me the right answer and and i who am i to even know what the right answer maybe right. i don't know it um but if i maybe see you know that they're maybe um not in the most healthy place they're doing stuff that's maybe not the most helpful for them even what that means is a hugely complex yeah. topic because actually sometimes the most unhelpful thing on paper and even with the data and the statistics yeah. it's what you need to do to get it out your system to move on or whatever it is you know and hopefully getting it out of your system doesn't harm anyone else of course like you know i'd step in if other people were being harmed yeah. um but generally speaking someone's screaming on instagram at strangers you know and have a following of a thousand people or something they're probably not going to you know crumble the world around them um so I think generally speaking, I just make space for people. I ask them questions, you know, leave them. How's this working for you? Like, what, what yeah. do you think's next? You know, how, do you, oh, it's, it must be frustrating that they're not changing. What do you think they're thinking? What do you think they're feeling? What do you think? What, do you remember what it was like to be like that? Like, what would have changed your mind? What did change your mind? You, you grew up, what, did someone challenge you? Was it someone challenging you, asking the right questions? Oh, it was just you actually just kind of by osmosis happens to happen one day, or it's because your loved one died, or it's because you went through a divorce, or it's because you read this passage in the Bible. Oh, it, it wasn't anything to do with someone screaming at you online. Um, it, you know, giving people space to process and to think and to, um, to ask questions of themselves, um, I think generally speaking is much, much better than trying to push people in a certain direction because yeah. God, I have tried controlling people for a good <laughs> chunk of my life. I was a Christian. I tried yeah. to control people a lot. Um, that's our thing. We tell people what to do. And we, when we don't do it, we get upset and we try and coerce them to do it. Mm. Um, it never worked. It never worked. When it did work, everyone was miserable and it only blew up a bit further down the line. Um, it, it's it's just not healthy. It's not helpful. I, and I, And now I understand psychological development. I think once you understand that people grow up through stages, you stop demonizing people at any stage it's do you know what it's impossible for me to sit around with my in-laws as they say really unhealthy stuff it makes me genuinely fume like i'm so full of rage at times and i have to just get up and leave the room and things occasionally we have a big fight or something but generally speaking um if i can step out the room and sit down and go okay this is their worldview. This is how they were brought up. This is how they see the world. This is what they're scared of. This is what they're fearful of. This is why they're trying to make everyone believe like they do, because they're scared if they're, what they believe is wrong, then will they lose their safety? They lose their certainty. They need to be certain that God is this God, not yeah. that God. And they need to be certain that they're part of the right group and they need to protect their income or their whatever, or their, you know, space, safe white space or whatever it is. Right. Uh, and this doesn't, you know, it could be your in-laws, it could be that pastor down the road, it can be the guy on the street yelling into a billboard, into a big megaphone holding a billboard condemning abortions or homosexuals and things like that. And you're like, you know, I'm going to step in because this is harming people. I don't, I'm I'm going to, you know, do my best to, to step in. But even in that space, it's important to remember this person is as developed as they are. Yeah. It would be about as effective as me going to that toddler and going, so you're telling me that two plus two is four, but let me tell you from a theoretical point, mathematically, two plus four, two doesn't always equal four. Theoretically, you right? you go into like some sort of advanced mathematics kind of thing. <laughs> no one's going to get right. Even if you've got postgrad in maths, maybe you're starting to engage in this stuff. Like, where's that going to go? Where's the, right? It's like a teenager talking to their toddler and going, well, see, the thing is with algebra, right? What, what kind of, end result is a teenager yeah, talking to what? a toddler about algebra going to be they're not going to get it they're not going to get it um and so 
you trying to get your racist uncle to not be racist over Thanksgiving dinner. Wow. That sounds like a terrible way to torment myself over two hours. Now I'm going to say, Hey, I would really rather you didn't say racist things over the dinner. If you don't, you won't be invited back. So I can say no, not on my watch, but I'm not going to go, Hey, racist uncle, let me try and help you decolonize in the next two hours. It's not going to happen. Like, right. My racist uncle is racist and he is like worldview locked in, has met like two people that aren't him. <laughs> you know, like, it's like he is locked into a worldview. Now, hopefully over time, you know, we can help them grow. We can ask questions. We can facilitate that growth, but that's not going to happen over Thanksgiving dinner. And it's not going to happen if you start yelling at him and calling him a racist, right? I mean, this is just not going to happen. So I think it's, it's, it's about giving people space. It's about asking questions. It's about making room. And it's about recognizing that people are where they are because that's the only place they can be right now. Yeah. And at best we can facilitate them moving towards something better, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, that. Yeah level of compassion goes a long way to preserve relationships as well, which I think mitigates additional grief events, of course, but it also gives us the opportunity to reflect and recognize, like you were saying, well, this is their world worldview. And I was there once too, whether I want to admit it or not. And I don't want to let shame be the reason that I start refining my life. I want compassion and love and humility and affection to be the reason I start refining my life and moving forward. And so I love that you Mm. um, just identified, yes, when we can create that for people, and that doesn't mean you create it for people who have actively harmed you. Like there's no requirement on you for that ever, but in terms of family members or friends that you just have a falling out with because you believe differently giving the opportunity for reconciliation as the outcome of a grief event in some way is really quite beautiful. Thank you for Mm. saying that. Phil, we don't have much more time. So I'm curious, is there any one thing I'll put everything in the notes, but is there one thing you just want to leave us with or um, celebrate that you're working on or share about? I don't know. Um, Yeah. I think, you know, this is deconstruction is such a bizarre bizarre thing to go through for anyone because it's unlike anything people have been through at this point in their life and it is it's a deep grieving um generally speaking it is a death of community death of friendships death of some family members death of your god um even if you still believe in god going out the other end you probably believe in a different god and so that relationship even the relationship with god it's a death like you know you have to grieve that process and so I think the work that you're doing with grief is, is um, you know, so uh, important for people that go through deconstruction. And I do not see it um, as uh, surprising that, that grief often sparks deconstruction as well. While you're grieving, you might as well grieve everything else as well. Just wrap um, it all in. Let's go through it together. Absolutely, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, like if people are in the process of losing their faith, it's okay that this is hard. It's okay that this is really, really hard because- it's unprecedented. And even if you've done this before, it's hard, right? I mean, you tell anyone that's lost a loved one, losing another loved one isn't easier the next time. Um, it, it might be, I don't know, this might be some components of navigating it that maybe become a bit easier or something, but I doubt that much of the emotions, the ups, the downs, the feelings, like that's, that's grief and grief has to be what it is. And yeah, I think... Um, yeah, if you're going through deconstruction, if it's hard for you right now, check out the Deconstruction Network. It's a great place to go. There's about 6,000 people on there right now. And uh, generally speaking, it's very English-centric because all the Instagram accounts and people that I know that have advertised it and things like that are all very English-centric. And so um, if you're in, I don't know, uh, China, you might not find as many people. There are a lot of people in China, actually. But you know, generally speaking, if you're in an English-speaking country, you'll find a lot of people in your area. Like This is the fastest-growing spiritual movement in the Western world. Um, there is no spiritual movement that's growing as fast. In, in America alone, um, people are leaving the church or deconstructing their faith at a rate of about 1% of America a year. That's an astonishing amount. Um, it's absolutely astonishing amount of people. It's about three and a half million people every year. Um, and that's been over the last 14 years. You know, it's not even, and that actually, actually, it's not over the last 14 years. That's up until 2000 and 
15. So we're still waiting for the latest data on that because wow. there's some lagging information. Um, but yeah, it's it's a huge movement. And so the thing is, it can be one of the most isolating, lonely processes when you go out of that conventional space with lots of people in your life and all that different stuff. And you come out and you go into this new space. Generally speaking, people don't have a deconstruction church in your town. You know, if you right. if you stop being a Baptist <laughs> and you become a Lutheran, you just type in Lutheran to Google Maps right. and you've got a new church to try, right? But yeah. If you type in deconstruction into Google Maps, there's not much in your area, right? You don't know. You maybe get a, a company that will knock your house down with a wrecking ball yeah, or exactly. something. Um, <laughs> so, um, but the, the truth is, if you knocked on a hundred doors next, you know, you got your inner Jehovah Witness out and you just started knocking on doors, door by door and said, hey, have you lost your faith? I doubt you would get more than 10, 15, 20 doors down before you find someone that says yes. Yeah. It's, it's so, so prevalent, especially in America right now. Um, and so it doesn't have to be something you do alone. Deconstruction Network, there's other mm-hmm. communities out there. There's lots of communities online. Find me on um, Instagram. I'm Phil Drysdale. Or even better, I just started a new account called the Deconstruction Network. It's a yeah. great space to connect. Um, so yeah, connect with people online. There's so many great accounts. Um, I'm sure you can uh, point people in the right direction to many as well. Um, yeah, you don't have to do this alone. You really don't. It is, it's hard and it's lonely, but uh, um, there are people in this world for you. Phil, thank you for taking time to just encourage our listeners, but also for being as honest and real as you are. I think you're making a huge difference. And I know, uh, I know at least two people who have appreciated the crap out of everything you say, even when it's just cheeky or hilarious along with all the data too. So thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for listening to episode 55 of restorative grief. Deconstruction is an act as old as the earth itself, and yet something in this last generation has vilified the process as heretical, harmful, dangerous, and so on. I think of all the ways we could think about deconstruction, Phil's last point makes the most sense. We must allow ourselves to experience others and ourselves through expectations that are relevant to our current place in the world. Otherwise, we are piling on shame and continuing to labor under a mantle of life that is no longer ours to carry. If anything here resonated with you, I would strongly encourage you to follow Phil on Instagram, Twitter, through his website, or especially through joining his Patreon. The work he creates is entirely free and fully accessible, and it takes so much of his time, especially the new research arm of the Deconstruction Network. So if you can, I would love for you to honor that generosity with generosity of your own. And if this is your first time listening to Restorative Grief, thank you for choosing to join us and to stick it out through the end. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show, leave a review, tell me what you think, how I'm doing. There are plenty of links in the show notes to connect with me and learn more about what I do. And I would be honored to have you come follow on social media and connect with me and come along for the ride. And one last thing as always, please remember... The only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.